Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, A Cassus Belly Project. Before getting into the meat of this episode, I'd like to thank everyone who reached out during my break from the show. Feedback from listeners is always appreciated, and is my primary motivator in keeping the show going. If any of you would like to contact me, I encourage you to email me at cassusbellyguy at gmail.com. I would also appreciate it if you visited the website at cassusbellypodcast.com and liked the show on SoundCloud or left a positive review on iTunes. Also, sharing the show on social media like Facebook or Twitter is a great way to spread the show to new listeners. I'd also like to address the fact that there are no ads associated with the show. I know this might be a little annoying, but I hope that by monetizing the show, I can give myself a little more incentive to maintain a regular publishing schedule. Anyway, in this episode, I'll be discussing the veritable Asian blitz undertaken in the Pacific by the Japanese in 1941. Pearl Harbor is often thought of as being an isolated event, but in reality, it was only a single move in a coordinated series of invasions and attacks that the Japanese undertook in the hours immediately after and preceding the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The Japanese not only bombed Pearl and invaded Wake in the Philippines, as we discussed last time, but also began their invasions of British Malaya, the Dutch East Indies, and Thailand, and later bombed Darwin and engaged in a naval campaign in the Indian Ocean. It was a veritable naval, air, and land blitzkrieg that took place over a vast area. In addition, I'd also like to explain the British Indian Army, simply known as the Indian Army at the time, how it was organized, and what its relationship to the larger British Army was, because I'll be talking about it a lot this episode. So the Indian Army fell under the authority of the Governor General of India, who answered to London. The general officers of the Indian Army were all British, and held ranks equal to those of the regular army. The rest of the officer ranks were held by either regular British officers or British Indian officers. The difference being that British officers received their commissions from the king, and Indian officers received their commissions from the viceroy. Though Indian officers were supposed to be equal to British ones, they never really truly were, and all of the major commands went to the British. The enlisted and non-commissioned officer ranks were all held by Indians. For all intents and purposes, though, the Indian army fought as an extension of the regular British army. I've actually gotten more and more excited about this episode as I've researched it, because so much happened here that I was not really aware of before. As I was researching the invasion of Malaya and conquest of Singapore, I realized that I didn't really fully understand how the Japanese came to control French Indochina, so I began researching that. This led me down a rabbit hole that then led me to uncovering the strange relationship between Vichy and the Axis in East Asia. The Malaya campaign also led me to researching the brief war with Thailand carried out by the Japanese. I'd always thought that Thailand was more or less neutral in the Second World War. Little did I realize that the Japanese and Thai forces actually shot at each other, and that the Allies later bombed Bangkok. Of course, this then led me to reading about the brief Franco-Thai War that occurred when the Thai government used the chaos after the fall of France to invade and seize what is modern-day northwestern Cambodia. So settle in, because I've got a lot to talk about in episode 18, Kaminari Sen.
So in the beginning of the last episode, I noted that French Indochina had been occupied by the Japanese since 1940. Well, this was an oversimplification for the sake of expediency. In reality, the situation was much more complicated. The Japanese interest in Indochina was twofold. One, they wanted to cut off supplies flowing into China, where they were still very much engaged in campaigning. And two, they desired yet another colony from which to extract resources desperately needed in the home islands. The occupation of Indochina is also interesting because it displays the unique and strange position the government of Vichy France was in. Nominally, Japan, Germany, and the French government in Vichy were all on the same side, but in practice, that was not necessarily the case. Prior to the fall of France, Japan had been trying to cut off the Kunming Haiphong Railway by seizing southern Guangxi province in order to strangle Chinese forces operating there. The going was slow, however. After Germany invaded France, the Japanese saw that the writing was on the wall and presented the governor-general of Indochina, Georges Coutreau, with an ultimatum. They told him that he must close the railway into China and submit to a Japanese inspection regime. With the German armies closing on Paris and Japanese military units gathering nearby, Coutreau had little choice but to acquiesce. On June 20th, 1940, two days before the French capitulation, the first Japanese demands were met. For his cowardice, the governor-general was sacked and replaced with Admiral Jean Ducot. The Japanese soon returned with more demands. In two different missives, they demanded fleet and aircraft basing rights, as well as a complete closure of the border with China. Upon arrival, with instructions from the Vichy government, Admiral Ducot resisted the Japanese overtures. Though they couldn't stop a full-on Japanese invasion, they did feel that they could make one very costly for the Japanese. The French had 32,000 regulars, plus 17,000 auxiliaries, as well as 4,000 African auxiliaries in Djibouti that could be shipped over if the need arose. To resolve the situation, the French government in Vichy submitted a proposal to Tokyo that would allow Japanese basing and transit rights through their territories in Indochina. Though the details hadn't been worked out, both governments tacitly agreed to the arrangement. Local leaders had different ideas, however. When Japanese negotiators' demands became too extreme, the French colonial administrators reached out to the Germans for help. The Germans, uninterested in obscuring their allies, were silent. So the French colonial government reached out to the Allies to try and get a guarantee against Japanese incursions. The British already had their hands full and couldn't offer much, and the Americans were unwilling to instigate conflict with the Japanese, so the French were left on their own. The local Japanese commanders in southern China, like those in northern China years earlier, were also unbeholden to their home governments. They wanted to aggressively seize Indochina like they had Manchuria, and made moves to do so. By the end of September 1940, an accord had been worked out that would allow 6,000 Japanese troops to be stationed in the French colony, as well as the use of several airfields and shore facilities. Despite this, the Japanese invaded anyway. On September 22nd, the Japanese pushed south into northern Vietnam, where they met token resistance and engaged in limited skirmishes as they captured towns and villages. On the 24th, Japanese carrier aircraft attacked French shore facilities in the Gulf of Tonkin. On September 26th, the Japanese carried out amphibious landings south of Haiphong, bringing to shore 4,500 troops and a dozen or so tanks. With most of the strategic locations in northern Vietnam firmly under control of the Japanese, they moved to restore government and anti-hostilities. They returned French administrators to their posts and allowed them to run the colony for them. The French were still nominally in control, but the Japanese had free access. Nine months later, with the Soviet Union crumbling under German invasion, the Japanese moved to take the rest of French Indochina. 
At that point, they not only had full control over the region through French handlers, but also could freely extract resources and use their basing rights. From these positions in modern-day Vietnam and Cambodia, the Japanese were staged to invade the Dutch East Indies, Thailand, and British Malaya. Control of Malaya, and ultimately Singapore, would grant the Japanese dominance over the Straits of Malacca, allowing them to control access to the Pacific from the west. The conquest of the Dutch East Indies, and what is today Indonesia, would not only block maritime access to the south, would also give them control of the vast oil wealth located there. At the time, the Dutch East Indies were the fourth largest oil producing region in the world. This was especially crucial because the Japanese had essentially no access to oil since the embargo was placed on them six months earlier. The invasion of Malaya occurred first and was part of the coordinated strikes that all began on December 8th. The Japanese plan was to utilize troops stationed in French Indochina and Hainan to invade at the Thai border and proceed down the west coast of the Malay Peninsula until they reached Johor and Singapore. At the same time, the Japanese launched a relatively small and short invasion of Thailand in order to coerce the kingdom into supporting their campaigns and set the conditions for their success in the Malaya campaign and in the greater Southeast Asian region. The invasion of Thailand consisted of seven simultaneous landings and one overland incursion beginning on December 8th. The northernmost portion consisted of the 33rd Imperial Japanese Army Division pushing north from French Indochina into southeastern Thailand and what is today northwestern Cambodia. Thailand had only recently conquered the province from the French in early 1941, and the Japanese sought to reincorporate that into French Indochina to bolster their own position. The Japanese encountered no defenses and so took the province without incident. The rest of Japanese operations against Thailand took place on the neck of the Malay Peninsula. Most of these landings were small, consisting of only battalion to regiment-sized elements. Again, most of these maneuvers were lightly contested and few to no casualties were sustained by either side. However, the Battle of Praushop Kiri Khan was an exception. At 3 in the morning of December 8th, the 2nd Battalion of the 143rd Infantry Regiment began putting ashore to capture the airfield located in the town. The Thai garrison put up stiff resistance and forced the Japanese to fight building by building to secure the airfield, and by noon were overwhelmed and surrendered, but not until having inflicted hundreds of casualties on the Japanese. It's unclear how many Japanese were killed and injured, but it was certainly several hundred compared to only 42 Thai casualties. Sadly, one of those casualties was the garrison commander's pregnant wife, who died when struck by a stray Japanese bullet. With the Japanese troops achieving success across their country, the Thai government agreed to terms. On December 14th, the Thai Prime Minister signed an agreement to allow Japanese basing rights and to lend troops to assist in the Malaya campaign. A week later, the Thai government entered into an alliance with the Japanese. In London, the Thai ambassador dutifully delivered a proclamation of war against the British Empire. However, the Thai ambassador to the United States refused and instead organized the Free Thai Movement. They would go on to train with the OSS, and eventually form a sort of Thai resistance against the Japanese. Regardless, the Allies could no longer hope to bring Thailand into the fold, and regarded her as a Japanese-occupied territory. The conditions were now met for the Japanese to concentrate all of their efforts on the Malaya campaign. The invasion of British Malaya began in earnest the morning of December 8th, with the landing at Katubaru, a town with a key airfield. Due to the international dateline being east of Malaya, the landings here actually began an hour before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Japanese soldiers were loaded and moving toward the shore on their transports by 12.30 a.m. local time. The bombing of Pearl was still about 30 minutes away. 
As the Japanese approached, the Indian troops defending the beach opened fire from prepared defenses, consisting of pillboxes and trench lines. The defenders of Katubaru were not pushovers to any extent. The Indian army men inflicted heavy casualties on the veterans of the Chinese campaigns brought against them. The Japanese had to engage in bloody hand-to-hand -hand combat to puncture the defenders' lines, but were then bombed and strafed by Allied aircraft based nearby. Allied aircraft also attempted to bomb the Japanese ships, and succeeded in sinking the transport ship Awazisan Maru over the course of 17 sorties with 10 bombers available. This didn't staunch the flow of Japanese troops, so the defenders moved to their secondary positions around the airfield. Later in the day, the local commander, Brigadier B.W. Key of the 8th Indian Infantry Brigade, attempted to organize a counterattack, but the Japanese were too well established and he was forced to withdraw. By nightfall, the battle was essentially over and the airfield was in Japanese hands. As the landings at Katubaro were picking up steam, the Japanese were launching air raids across the peninsula, including one on Singapore itself. This is where the Japanese had the greatest advantage. Yes, their troops were more experienced, and they had better equipment for the most part, but the Allies had assigned very little priority to the east, considering that Hitler was rampaging across Europe. Only older, outdated aircraft were present for the most part, and even these were few in number. Katubaru marked the starting point for the advance toward Singapore on the eastern side of the peninsula. The western advance began at Patani and Singoro, both north of Katubaru on the Thai border, where the peninsula was narrowest. From there, the Japanese crossed over to the western side and began their march southward along the coast. Before long, the Japanese also had complete air and naval superiority, giving their ground forces complete freedom of maneuver during any time of day or weather conditions. It was under these conditions that the island of Penang was bombed. Penang, and specifically Georgetown, were a hub for western expats and colonial officials in British Malaya, so the Japanese began targeting it on the first day of the campaign. Under threat of Japanese occupation, the colonial government began evacuating Westerners from the island without regard for what became of the local population. This essentially cost the British the support of the local populace when the evacuation came into full effect on December 17th. That same day, the first Japanese troops began landing at Sarawak, a part of British-controlled Borneo. By the end of 1941, the Japanese had occupied most of northern Malaya and were preparing to advance on Kuala Lumpur. Meanwhile, the campaign in the Dutch East Indies was just beginning. In a stroke of irony, the Dutch had actually declared war on the Japanese on the morning of December 8th, before even receiving news of Pearl Harbor. Tensions with Japan had been high, and the Dutch government in exile knew that the Japanese coveted their enormous oil reserves, so in solidarity with the Allies and other Allied-occupied powers, declared war. Little difference it made, however. The Japanese invasion forces were already staging and preparing to land. The government in Tokyo didn't formally declare war in return until January 11th. They hoped to wage an undeclared war against the Dutch, in the hopes that the Dutch wouldn't preemptively destroy their oil wells. Due to the Dutch declaration, Dutch vessels and garrisons had several weeks to months to prepare before the first Japanese would start putting ashore in Dutch-controlled Borneo. The Japanese would only make cursory moves in the East Indies by the end of 1941. Their main campaign wouldn't begin until January 1942, and would take months to carry out. Considering that the entirety of the Dutch East Indies is about 2,400 miles long, that is no mean feat. Of course, they didn't have to outright conquer every square inch of the region, just the populated areas at the coast where Allied garrisons and airfields were located. 
That was still a few months away, however. Kuala Lumpur and Singapore still lay in Allied hands. The British had invested all of their defense of the Far East in the so-called Singapore Strategy. It placed the naval fortress at Singapore as a base of operations from which the fleet would sail to engage the Japanese Navy. The plan was rife with problems and impracticalities, but by being just about the only viable option, and by virtue of having been repeated so often, it became a dogma among British naval planners. The Australians, for their part, saw it as an excuse to invest as little as possible in their home defense. They assumed that the home fleet would come to their defense if the need arose. There was one fatal flaw, however, that the British never considered, that the city could be attacked from the north. They had never considered that the enemy might march down the Malay Peninsula and cross the Straits of Johor. They only envisioned a direct naval attack from the south, where the main port of Singapore is. So that's just what the Japanese did. With the start of the new year, Allied positions on the peninsula only deteriorated. The redoubt at Camp Par that had been established on December 27th fell on January 2nd, after a pitched battle characterized by attacks on trench works, followed by counterattacks on Japanese positions and fierce artillery duels. Campara was actually a tactical victory for the Allies, but they were unable to capitalize on it and withdrew. The Japanese had been delayed, but not halted to any extent. On January 11th, the Japanese took Kuala Lumpur unopposed. They were now about two-thirds of the way down the peninsula, and only 200 miles from their objective at Singapore. There was no break from the offensive after capturing this key city. The positions the British withdrew to were at the Slim River to the south. Here, the 11th Indian Division attempted to make a stand against the oncoming Japanese by forming a blocking position. The two brigades composing the 11th Division formed along the road to the south and established roadblocks and flanking positions in the jungle for the Japanese to contend with. They hoped to give the Japanese a choice between attacking head-on with tanks down the road or moving dismounted infantry through the thick, sweltering jungle. Early in the morning of January 7th, the Japanese began attacking the British positions. They initiated the battle with a mortar and artillery bombardment, followed by advancing tanks and infantry along the road south. There they met the 4th Battalion of the 19th Hyderabad Regiment. These were experienced jungle troops, and had performed relatively well thus far in the Malaya campaign, where the Battle of Slim River would truly put them to the test. Without anti-tank weapons, they were hopelessly outmatched by Japanese armor and were quickly scattered into the jungle. The first roadblock had been breached before dawn. Some of the retreating men fell onto positions of the 5th Battalion, 2nd Punjab Regiment, and alerted them to the Japanese advance. The Punjabis had better luck against the Japanese armor, and were able to destroy the two lead tanks in the approaching column, blocking the road entirely. For a brief moment, the Japanese were in a real bind. They were bunched up on the road and unsupported. If British artillery had been brought to bear, the whole column could have been wiped out. Unfortunately, communication lines to the rear had been cut, and nothing was getting back to the fire direction center. With time, the Japanese were able to find a way around the roadblock and used their infantry to clear the jungle on the flanks. Again, the defenders were overwhelmed and scattered. The sun had only just risen. The third position was held by units of the regular British Army. They lacked anti-tank weapons and had not had time to establish barriers on the roads through the village they were defending, but still managed to hold off the Japanese for an hour and a half. Again, though, Without the weapons necessary, the regulars were scattered into the jungle when the full force of the approaching Japanese column reached them. 
The 28th Brigade suffered a similar fate. It consisted of battalions of Gurkhas and Sepoys, and for the most part, was caught on the march. If troops in prepared positions fared poorly, these units were annihilated. With the complete collapse and destruction of the 11th Division, the Japanese were able to capture two key bridges over the Slim River and secure their advance to Singapore. The next major engagement would be at Johor, at the very bottom of the peninsula, and the last major obstacle before Singapore itself. Following the defeat at the Battle of Slim River, General Sir Archibald Wavell, who you may recall from past episodes about the North Africa Campaign, a newly appointed commander of Abdicon, American, British, Dutch, Australia Command, decided that the 3rd Indian Corps should withdraw to Johor and form a redoubt while the 8th Australian Division fought a delaying action. Once again, General Wavell was placed in command of a theater with not enough resources spread out over way too large an area. The Australians needed to buy time for the units north of them to move south and for the 3 India Corps to create a defensive line along Batu Pahat, Kluang, and Mersing. What resulted was the Battle of Muar, the last and largest battle of the Malaya Campaign. Lieutenant General Arthur Percival placed the Australians between the sea and the mountains on the western side of the quickly narrowing peninsula and instructed them to set up ambushes. This would not be overly difficult with the narrow roads and thick jungle they had to work with. The division broke its area of operations into two segments. Now I want to preface this portion with the caveat that the geography in this battle is a little confusing and it took me a little while to piece it together, so bear with me. On the left side of the division defense, the 45th Indian Brigade defended along the Moir River from the strait through the town of Moir and up the river into the jungle. On the right, the Allied positions pushed further north into Gamas and Sagamat. The first position straddled the road and railway through Gamas, about 30 miles north-northwest of Moir. Here, the 8th Indian Infantry Brigade established defenses. Behind this position, the 27th Australian Brigade prepared to conduct a counterattack, but also dispatched one battalion to ambush the Japanese advance. To the left of the Gamas positions was the 22nd Indian Infantry, which defended the region facing westward into Malacca from Johor. At the Gamenza Bridge, a single Australian company prepared an ambush approaching the bridge and primed it with explosives. The battle kicked off at 4 in the afternoon of January 14th, when the Australians at Gamenza Bridge spotted the Japanese 5th Division. They allowed the initial bicycle-mounted infantry to cross, but when engineer trucks and tanks approached, they initiated contact and blew the bridge. Following this, the Australians opened up with machine gun fire from well-covered and concealed positions inside the jungle. The ambush was devastating. The Japanese were caught totally off guard. To make matters worse, the Japanese bicycle infantry had tied their rifles to their handlebars, making returning fire that much more difficult. Unfortunately, the Japanese that had been allowed to pass through the ambush discovered the signal wires leading back to the fire direction center, thus denying Allied indirect fire support. In a twist of fate, however, the Australians received indirect fire support from the Japanese. Their artillery was off the mark and dropped ordnance on their own column on the road, adding to the carnage already inflicted by the Aussies. Having succeeded in interdicting and ambushing their enemy, the Australians fell back to the main defensive line at Gamas. The next day, Japanese aircraft were hammering the town of Gamas and the column was moving again, having repaired the blown bridge overnight. The 30th Australian Infantry Regiment, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Black Jack Gallahan, attached to the 22nd Infantry, dug in along the road and emplaced two two-pounder anti-tank guns. At 10 in the morning, 
the Japanese found the Australian defensive positions. They threw tanks and men at the bulwarks, but suffered high casualties. Six of the eight tanks available to the 11th Japanese Regiment were lost. After a full day of fighting, though, the Australians had to withdraw. In the ambush at Gemenza and the battle at Gamas, they'd inflicted a heavy toll on the Japanese. An estimated 1,000 Japanese casualties against only 81 Australian. They had done their part and were confident. Unfortunately, the rest of the battle was not going too smoothly. At Moor, the Japanese began their offensive in the evening of January 15th, after most of the Battle of Gamas had already occurred. They began by sneaking across the river at night and stealing barges and junks to ferry their troops across. There was a brief skirmish with an Indian patrol, but inexplicably the higher headquarters was never alerted to the Japanese presence south of the river. The next morning, the Japanese were able to get across the river unmolested, surprising and flanking the defending Rajputana rifles of the 45th Indian Brigade. This left the elements north of the river, the 18th Royal Garwal Rifles, completely cut off. In only about an hour, the Japanese had established a beachhead while sustaining hardly any casualties, and the Allied defense had suffered a massive setback. At the town of Moore, the Japanese crossing was interdicted by Australian artillery, but this hardly stemmed the tide of the Japanese advance. Another unit had crossed the river to the northeast of the town and began attacking its right flank. They quickly made progress into the town and managed to decimate the defending leadership. By nightfall of January 16th, Muar was in Japanese hands and the remaining defenders were moving south to Parit Jawa, six miles south along the coast. With the defense collapsing, Allied leadership organized a counterattack to retake Muar. The 45th Indian Brigade, supported by a battalion each from the Australian 19th and 29th Regiments, occupied the town of Bakri, just outside Muar. There, Brigadier Herbert Duncan planned his counteroffensive while his men prepared hasty defenses around their assembly area. As his units coalesced, one column ran into a Japanese ambush, preventing the planned counteroffensive from starting on time. The next morning, General Nishimura launched a spoiling attack against Duncan's forces in Bakri. At 6.45 in the morning of January 18th, the Japanese began their assault. It was spearheaded by an armor column, which was practically annihilated. Australian anti-tank gunners fired round after round at the small, poorly armored Japanese tanks, sending a whole company up in flames. Despite this setback, Japanese infantry began encircling the town, by the end of the first day had nearly surrounded the defenders. Concurrently, the Japanese assaulted the ridge 20 miles south of the town, effectively cutting it off from support. In desperation, a counterattack was launched the next day by the 3rd Battalion, 16th Punjabi Regiment. The attack was successful, but the Japanese soon recovered the hill anyway. The same day, the brigade commander lost his life in a bayonet charge. Still fighting to take Bakri, the Japanese began establishing roadblocks and ambushes along the road south of the town, and on the morning of January 20th, the brigade began exfiltrating itself from Bakri to fight south. And it was a fighting withdrawal if there ever was one. They marched night and day, encountering Japanese obstacles the whole way. By the time the unit got back to Allied lines, only 500 Australians and 400 Indians remained. The 45th Indian Brigade had ceased to exist as a fighting unit. Not all of those men had died in combat, though. In their haste to get back to friendly lines, 110 Australian and 40 Indian wounded were left behind at Parti Sulong, where they were discovered by the Japanese. Rather than take the men prisoner and care for them, 
The Japanese executed them all with bayonets and fire. Only one man survived. On January 20th, the Japanese reached the ill-prepared final defensive line in Johor. The defense lasted for seven days, but unable to hold out, General Wavell allowed General Percival to withdraw to Singapore. The defense of Malaya was a catastrophic failure. Over the course of two months, the British had been ejected from their colony and suffered horrendous losses. 50,000 Commonwealth soldiers were no longer fighting under the Union Jack. What remained were now holed up in Singapore, hoping to hold out. In the next episode, we'll cover the fall of Singapore and its aftermath. We'll discuss the fate of Australian POWs and proceed to the invasion of the Dutch East Indies. From there, we'll move on to the Japanese naval campaign in the Western Indian Ocean and the Japanese raid on Darwin. Oh!